Welcome to the Only You Podcast. This is your host, Lo Jackson. Thank you for tuning in again. And like I had said in my earlier podcasts this month, I'm going to stay on one author each month now and see if I can't focus on learning more about each author so each podcast will get better and better and build during the month instead of me kind of sharing books that I've read along the way. And this will be more of a, kind of like a structured podcast instead of, you know, me just sharing the books that I know that you'll enjoy. Um, today, I'm going to be going over a book with you uh, that Leo Tolstoy wrote, which Leo Tolstoy is our author of the month. He's a, actually a fabulous author, very well-rounded. He, I feel like he's the type of guy that pretty much burned his life down and started over, made up so many different um, theories in his head. He like tested theories that were out there and went against the norm. Today I'm going to be reading There Are No Guilty People, but I want to share a few things with you. Um, a young boy once lived in a house in a forest. He and his brothers played in the woods, ponds, and fields that surrounded their home. One day, an older brother told the child about a green stick that was buried near a ravine in the deepest part of the forest. If you find the stick, the brother said, you will enjoy great happiness and the power of love bringing happiness to all mankind. At once, the boy began hunting for the fabled stick. His, sit, his search continued throughout the rest of his life. The boy in this story was Leo Tolstoy. And I wanted to also share something about Leo Tolstoy, that he actually had went to college, and he partied and drank the whole time. So I believe in like 1847, he wound up quitting the University of Kazan and went back to his parents' house where he entertained farming and became a farmer for a while. And then later in life, when he actually became a pretty well-renowned writer and people were very in tune with his writings at the time because, you know, he was a... A very interesting guy. For a long time, he didn't believe in anything. He didn't believe in the government, didn't believe in religion. And then he wound up turning his life back over to God at the age of 50 and really got his life together. And he wrote so many amazing writings that he even tested his own writings and kind of hated some of them when they were well-liked and renowned by society. Um... And I say, you know, and later in his 50s, when he started doing more Christian writings, he actually started um, gardening at his estate. And many writers nowadays actually visit there to realize the creativity between the earth, gardening, and creativity. And they go to his estate just to get more creativity, or if they have writer's block, they visit there. Um, today I've been really entertaining something kind of interesting to do with plants. It's something to think about, which I'm sure everybody knows what a non-GMO is, which is a, not, 
uh, non-genetically modified organism, which they say that genetically modified organisms are just as healthy as non-genetically modified organisms. But I do want to say, I don't know if anybody knows or is um, realizing that um, a lot of bills have been passed in the United States that have allowed companies to emerge such as AgriScience, uh, Corteva, Yield 10 Bioscience, Benson Hill, Arcadia Bioscience, Catalyst. These are all companies that are actually into, they're like the biggest companies that do gene editing of plants. And there's a company out there called Medigo also that, so these companies have realized they have, there are VLPs, which VLPs are virus-like particles, and they can go in and genetically edit the DNA of certain type of plants that will take on the VLP or the virus-like particle, and then they already have a COVID-19 um, plant vaccination out there right now. Um, they're doing more research on it at this moment. And I guess like analysts say that this is going to be a $21 billion uh, market by 2030. And the market for gene editing products and traits is highly competitive as the, you know, as like the competition for improving plant uh, genetics comes from conventional and advanced plant breeding techniques and from genetically modified plants. They're making tons of money doing this stuff, and they're thinking, but this is, I'm sharing this with you because I think it's something to be careful about. You know, we, we will be aware that these products are out there, but you also have to be aware where these companies go and start meddling with, you know, everyday plants that we use every day, you know, because... I don't know. I don't know. Do these people really understand what they're doing when they do this stuff? I don't know if they do, but I thought it was interesting to share because Leo Tolstoy was a gardener, and I learned about these companies genetically modifying plants, and I think that people should be aware of where these companies are going and what they're doing to our food. Thank you for listening to the Only You Podcast. It's your boy, Lo Jackson, and this is There Are No Guilty People. Mine is a strange and wonderful lot. The chances are that there is not a single wretched beggar suffering under the luxury and oppression of the rich who feels anything like as keenly as I do, either the injustice, the cruelty, and the horror of their oppression of and contempt for the poor, or the grinding humiliation and misery which befall the great majority of the workers, the real producers of all that makes life possible. I have felt this for a long time, and as the years have passed, by the feeling, ha- excuse me, yeah, by the feeling has grown and grown, until recently, it reached its climax. Although I feel all of this so vividly, I still live on amid and deprived and sins of rich society, and I cannot leave it because. I have neither the knowledge nor the strength to do so. I cannot. I do not know how to change my life so that my physical needs, food, sleep, clothing, my going to and fro may be satisfied without a sense of shame and wrongdoing in the position which I fill. 
There was a time when I tried to change my position, which was not in harmony with my conscience, but the conditions created by the past, by my family and its claims upon me, were so complicated that they would not let me out of their grasp, or rather, I did not know how to free myself. And I feel that a lot of people in the world struggle from this at a young age, that you do not know right away how to become yourself so you fall victim of staying home for far too long or not you know venturing out and following your dreams I had not the strength now that I am over 80 and have become feeble I have given up trying to free myself and strange to say as my feebleness increases I realize more and more strongly the wrongfulness of my position and it grows more and more intolerable to me it has occurred to me that I do not occupy this position for nothing that province intended that I should lay bare the truth of my feelings so that I might atone for all the causes of my suffering and might perhaps open the eyes of those or at least of some of those who are still blind to what I see so clearly and thus might lighten the burden of that vast majority who under existing conditions are subjected to bodily and spiritual suffering by those who deceive them and also deceive themselves. Indeed, it may be that the position which I occupy gives me special facilities for revealing the artificial and criminal relations which exist between men for telling the whole truth in regard to that position without confusing the issue by attempting to vindicate myself and without rousing the envy of the rich and feeling of oppression in the hearts of the poor and downtrodden. I am so placed that I not only have no desire to vindicate myself, but, on the contrary, I find it necessary to make an effort lest I should exaggerate the wickedness of the great among whom I live, of those society I am shamed, whose attitude towards their fellow men I detest with my whole soul, though I find it impossible to separate my lot from theirs." But I must also avoid the error of those Democrats and others who, in defending the oppressed and the enslaved, do not see their failings and mistakes, and who do not make sufficient allowance for the difficulties created, the mistakes inherited from the past, which I, excuse me, which in a degree lessens the responsibility of the upper class. Free from desire for self-vindication, free from fear of an emancipated people, free from the envy and hatred which the oppressed feel for their oppressors, I am the best possible position to see the truth and to tell it. Perhaps that is why Providence placed me in such a position. Providence means the protective care of God, everybody. I wanted to share that. I will do my best to turn it to account. Alexander Ivanovich Volgin, a bachelor and a clerk in Moscow Bank, at a salary of 80 
thousand rubles a year, a man much respected in his own set was staying in a country house. His host was wealth, a wealthy landowner, owning some 2,500 acres, and had married his guest cousin. Volgan, tired after an evening spent in playing vent for small stakes with a game of cards similar to bridge, members of the family went to his room and placed his watch, silver cigarette case, pocketbook, big leather purse and pocket brush and a comb on a small table table covered with a white cloth and then taking off his coat, waistcoat, shirt, trousers and underclothes, his silk stockings and English boots, but on his nightshirt and they put on his nightshirt and dressing gown. His watch pointed to midnight. Volgan smoked a cigarette lay on his face for about five minutes reviewing the day's impressions. Then blowing out his candle, he turned over on his side and fell asleep about one o'clock. In spite of a good deal of restlessness, awaking next morning at eight, he put on his slippers and dressing gown and rang the doorbell. The butler, Stephen, the father of a family and grandfather of six grandchildren, who had served in that house for thirty years, entered the room hurriedly and bent with bent legs, carrying in the newly blackened boots which Volgan had taken off the night before, a well-brushed suit and a clean shirt. The guests thanked him and then asked what the weather was like. The blinds were drawn so that the sun should not prevent anyone from sleeping till eleven o'clock if he were so inclined, and whether his host had slept well. He glanced at the watch, it was still early, and began to wash and dress. His water was ready, and everything on the washing stand and dressing table was ready for use and properly laid out. His soap, his tooth, and hair brushes, his nail scissors, and files. He washed his hands and face in leisurely fashion, cleaned and manicured his nails, pushed back, the skin with the trowel, the towel, and sponged his stout white body from head to toe. Then he began to brush his hair. Standing in front of the mirror, he first brushed his curly beard, which was beginning to turn gray with two English brushes, parting it down the middle. Then he combed his hair, which he are excuse me, which he already showing signs getting thin with a large tortoise shell comb. Putting on his underlinen, his socks, his boots, his trousers, which held up by elegant braces, and his waistcoat, he sat down coatless in an easy chair to rest after dressing, lit a cigarette, and began to think where he should go for a walk that morning to the park, or to Little Ports. What a funny name for a wood. Thank you guys for listening to the only... I also wanted to include in this segment that this story was actually left unfinished, and it's Leo Tolstoy's opposition to the death penalty. 
And that's what this story really has to do with. Only you podcast. Repeat, repeat. Thank you guys for tuning in. Thank you for sharing me. Hopefully you're enjoying the Leo Tolstoy reads that I've chosen to do. He thought he would go to Little Ports. Then he must answer Simon Nekolovich's letter, but there was time enough for that. Getting up with an air of resolution, he took out his watch. It was already five minutes to nine. He put his watch into his waist pocket and his purse with all that was left of the hundred and eighty rubles he had taken for his journey and for the incidental expenses for his fortnight's stay with his cousin and then he placed into his trouser pocket his cigarette case and electric cigarette lighter and two clean handkerchiefs into his coat pockets and went out to the room leaving as usual the mess and confusion which he had made to be cleared up by Stephen, an old man of over 50. Stephen expected Volgan to remunerate him, as he said, being so accustomed to work that he did not feel the slightest repugnance for it. Glancing at a mirror and feeling satisfied with his appearance, Volgan went into the dining room. There, thanks to the efforts of the housekeeper, the footman, and underbutler, the latter had risen at dawn in order to run home to sharpen his son's scathe. Breakfast was ready. A scathe is a tool used for cutting crops such as grass or corn with a long curved blade at the end of a long pole attached to one or two uh, short handles, everybody. On a spotless white cloth stood a boil, excuse me, stood a boiling, shiny silver pot. At least it looked like silver. A coffee pot, hot milk, cream, butter, and all sorts of fancy white bread and biscuits. The only person at the table were the second son of the house, his tutor, a student, and the secretary. The host, who was an active member of the Vemstivo and a great farmer had already left the house, having gone at eight o'clock to attend his work. Volgan, while drinking his coffee, talked to the student at the secretary and the secretary about the weather and yesterday's vent and discussed Theodorite's peculiar behavior the night before as he had been very rude to his father without the slightest cause. Theodorite was the grown-up son of the house and a newer do-well. His name was Theodore, but someone had once called him Theodorite either as a joke or to tease him and, as it seemed funny, the name stuck to him, although his doings were no longer in the least amusing. So it was now. He had been to the university, but left it in the second year and joined a regiment of horse guards. But he gave that up also and was now living in the country, doing nothing, finding fault, and feeling discontented with everything. Theodorite was still in bed, so were the other members of the household, Anna Mikhailovna, 
its mistress, her sister, the widow of a general and landscape painter who lived with the family. Volgan took his Panama hat from the hall table. It had cost 20 rubles and his cane with its carved ivory handle and went out. Crossing the veranda, gay with flowers, he walked through the flowering garden in the center which was a raised round bed with rings of red, white, and blue flowers and the initials of the mistress of the house done in carpet bedding in the center. Leaving the flower garden, Volgan entered the avenue of lime trees, hundreds of years old, which peasant girls were tidying and sweeping with spades and brooms. The gardener was busy measuring, and a boy was bringing something in a cart. Passing these, Volgan went into the park of at least a hundred and 25 acres filled with fine old trees and intersected by a network of well-kept walks. Smoking as he trolled, Volgan took his favorite path past the summer house into the fields beyond. It was pleasant in the park, but it was still nicer in the fields. On the right, some women who were digging potatoes formed a mass of bright red and white color. On the left were wheat fields, meadows, and grazing cattle. And in the foreground, slightly to the right, were the dark, dark oaks of Little Ports. Vol Volgan took a deep breath and felt glad that he was alive, especially here in his cousin's home where he was so thoroughly enjoying the, re the rest from his work at the bank. Lucky people to live in the country, he thought. True, with his farming and his Zimstivo, the owner of the estate was very little, little peace, even in the country. But that is his own lookout. Volgan shook his head, lit another cigarette, and stepped out firmly with his powerful feet clad in his thick English boots, began to think of the heavy winter's work and the bank that was in front of him. I shall be there every day for ten, from ten to two. Sometimes until five, after the board meetings and private interviews with clients, then the D Duma, where, whereas here, it is delightful. It may be a little dull, but it is not for long, he smiled. After a stroll into little ports, he turned back, going straight across a fallow field, which was being plowed. A herd of cows, cattle, sheep, and pigs, were, which belonged to the village community, was grazing there. The shortest way to the park was to pass through the herd. He frightened the sheep, which ran away one after another, and were followed by the pigs, of which two little ones stared solemnly at him. The shepherd boy called to the sheep and cracked his whip. How far behind Europe we are, thought Volgan recalling his frequent holidays abroad. You would not find a single cow like that anywhere in Europe. Then wanting to find out where the path which branched off from the one he was on led to and how, excuse me, and who was the owner of the herd, he called to the boy. Whose herd is that? The boy was so filled with wonder, verging on terror. Then he gazed at the hat, the well-brushed beard, and above all, the gold-rimmed eyeglasses, that he could not reply at once. Then Volgan repeated his question 
The boy pulled himself together and said, Ours. But who is ours? said Volgan, shaking his head and smiling. The boy was wearing shoes of plated birch bark, bands of linen around his legs, a dirty, unbleached shirt ragged at the shoulder, and a cap that peak of which had been torn. Whose is ours? The Pier Grove Village Herd. How old are you? I don't know. Can you read? No, I can't. Didn't you go to school? Yes, I did. Couldn't you learn to read? No. Where does the path lead? The boy told him, and Volgan went on toward the house, thinking how he would chafe Nicholas Petrovich about the deplore, deplorable conditions of the village schools in spite of all his efforts. On approaching the house, Volgan looked at his watch and saw that it was already past eleven. He remembered the, that Nicholas Petrovich was going to drive to the nearest town and that he had meant to give him a letter to post to Moscow, but the letter was not written. The letter was a very important one to a friend asking him to bid for him for a picture of the Madonna which was to be offered for sale at an auction. As he reached the house, he saw at the door four big, well-fed, well-groomed, thoroughbred horses harnessed to a carriage, the black lacquer of which glistened in the sun. The coachman was seated on the box in a caftan with a silver belt, and with horses were jiggling their silver bells from time to time, a bareheaded, barefooted peasant in a ragged caftan stood at the front door. He bowed. Volgan asked what he wanted. I have come to see Nicholas Petrovich. What about? Because I am in distress. My horse has died. Volgan began to question him. The peasant told him how he was situated. He had five children, and this had been his only horse. Now it was gone. He wept. What are you going to do? To beg? And he knelt down and remained kneeling in spite of Volgan's expostulations. Which is your name? Mitri Sudokov, answered the peasant, still kneeling. Volgan took three rubles from his purse and gave him to the peasant who showed his gratitude by touching the ground with his forehead and then went into the house. His host was standing in the hall. Where is your letter, he asked, approaching Volgan. I am just off. I'm awfully sorry. I'm writing it this minute, if you will let me. I forgot all about it. It's so pleasant here that one can forget anything. All right, but do it quickly. The horses have already been standing a quarter of an hour, and the flies are biting viciously. Can you wait? Arsently, he asked the coachman. Why not? said the coachman, thinking of, thinking to himself. Why do they order the horses when they aren't ready? The rush, the grooms, and I had just to stand here and feed the flies. Directly, directly, Volgan went towards his room, but turned back to ask Nicholas Petrovich about the begging peasant. Did you see him? 
He's a drunkard, but still, he is to be pitied. Don't be, do be quick. Vulcan got out his case, with all the requisites for writing, wrote the letter, made out a check for a hundred and eighty rubles, and settling down the envelope, took it to Nicholas Petrovich. Goodbye, Vulcan read the newspapers till lunch. He only read the liberal papers, the Russian Gazette speech sometimes the Russian word, but he would not touch the New Times to which his host subscribed. While he was scanning at his ease the political news, the Tsar doings, the doings of president and ministers, and decisions in the Duma, and was just to pass on the general news, theaters, science, murders, and cholera, he heard the lunch bell ring. Thanks to efforts of upwards of ten human beings, counting laundrius, gardeners, cooks, kitchen maids, butlers, and footmen, the table was sumptuously laid for eight with silver water jugs, decanters, vases of wine, mineral water, cut glass, and fine table linen, which two men's servants were continually hurling, hurrying to and fro, bringing in and serving, and then clearing away the leftovers and the various hot and cold courses. The host talked incessantly about everything that she had been doing, thinking, and saying, and she evidently considered that everything that she thought said or did was perfect and that it was ple it would please everyone except those who were fools. Vogan felt and knew that everything she said was stupid, but would never do to let it be seen, and so he kept up the conversation. Theodorite was gloom and silent. The student occasionally exchanged a few words with the widow. Now and again, there was a pause in the conversation and then Theodorite interposed and everyone became miserably depressed. At such moments the hostess ordered some dish that had not been served and the footman hurried off to the kitchen or to the housekeeper and hurried back again. Nobody felt inclined either to talk or to eat. But they all forced themselves to eat and to talk, and so lunch went on. The peasant who had been begging because his horse had died, his name was Mitri Sidarkov. He had spent the whole day before he went to the squire over his dead horse. First of all, he went to the knacker, Sanin, who lived in a near village. The knacker was out, but... He waited for him, and it was dinner time when he had finished bargaining over the price of the skin. Then he borrowed the neighbor's horse to take his own to a field to be buried, as it is forbidden to bury dead animals near a village. Adrian would not lend his horse because he was getting in his potatoes, but Stephen took pity on Mitri and gave way to his persuasion. He even lent a hand and lifting the dead horse into the cart. Mitri tore off the shoes from the forelegs and gave them to his wife. One was broken, but the other one was whole. While he was digging the grave with a spade, which was very blunt, the knacker appeared and took off the skin 
and the carcass was then thrown into the hole and covered up. Mitri felt tired and went into Mitrinea's hut where he drank half a bottle of vodka with sanine to counsel himself. Then he went home, quarreled with his wife, and lay down to sleep on the hay. He did not undress, but slept just as he was, and with a ragged coat for a cover. His wife was in the hut, and the girls, there were four of them, and the youngest was only five weeks old. Mitri woke up before dawn as usual. He groaned as the memory of the day before broke into him how the horse had struggled and struggled and then fallen down. Now there was no horse, and all he had was the price of the skin, four rubles and eighty kopecks. And remember, in my first podcast, I had said, you know, the rubles were dollars and kopecks are cents, you know, or change in Russia. Getting up, he arranged the linen bands on his legs and went through the yard into the hut. His wife was putting straw into the stove with one hand. With the other, she was holding a baby girl to her breast, which was hanging out of her dirty shirt. Mitri crossed himself three times, turning towards the corner in which the icons hung and repeated some utterly meaningless words, which he called prayers to the Trinity and Virgin, the Creed, and Our Father. Isn't there any water? The girl's gone for it. I've got some tea. Will you go up to the squire? Yes, I'd better. The smoke from the stove made him cough. He took a rag off the wooden bench and went into the porch. The girl had just come back with the water. Mitri filled his mouth with water from the pail and squirted it out on his hand to, excuse me, took some more in his mouth to wash his face, dried himself with a rag, then parted and smoothed his hair, curly hair, with his fingers and went out. A little girl of about ten, with nothing on but a dirty shirt, came towards him. Good morning, Uncle Mitri, she said. You are to come and thrash. All right, I'll come, replied Mitri. He understood that he was expected to return the help given the week before by Kumshakur, a man as poor as himself was then he was thrashing his own corn with a horse-driven machine. Tell them I'll come. I'll come at lunchtime. I've got to go to town. Mitri went back to the hut and, changing his birch bark shoes and the linen bands on his legs, started off to see the squire. After he had got three rubles from Volgan and the same sum from Nicholas Petrovich, he returned to his house, gave the money to his wife, and went to his neighbors. The thrashing machine was humming and the driver was shouting. The lean horses were going slowly around him, straining at their traces. The driver was shouting to them in a monotone, Now they're my dears. Some women were unbinding sheaves, others were raking up the scattered straw and ears, and other, others, again, were gathering great armfuls of corn 
and handing them to the men to feed the machine. The work was in full swing, and the kitchen garden, which Mitri had to pass, a girl clad only in a long shirt, was doing potatoes, which she put into a basket. "'Where's your grandfather?' asked Mitri. "'He's in the barn.' Mitri went to the barn and set to work at once. The old man of eighty knew of Mitri's trouble. After greeting him, he gave him his place to feed the machine." Mitri took off his ragged coat, laid it out of the way near the fence, and then began to work vigorously, raking the corn together and throwing it into the machine. The work went on without interruption until the dinner hour. The cocks had crowed two or three times, but no one paid any attention to them, not because the workers did not believe them, but because they were scarcely heard for the noise of the work and the talk about it. At least the whistle of the squire's steam thrasher sounded three miles away, and then the owner came into the barn. He was a straight old man of eighty. It's time to stop, he said. It's dinner time. Those at work seemed to redouble their efforts. In a moment, the straw was cleared away. The grain that had been thrashed was separated from the chafe and brought in, and then the workers went into the hut. The hut was smoke begrimed as its stove was had no chimney, but it had been tidied up and benches stood around the table making room for all those who had been working, of whom there were nine, not counting the owners. Bread, soup, boiled potatoes were placed on the table. One old-armed beggar with a bag slung over his shoulder came in with a crutch during the meal. Peace be to this house. A good appetite to you. For Christ's sakes, give me something. God will give it to you, said the mistress. Already an old woman and the daughter-in-law of the master. Don't be angry with us. An old man who was still standing near the door said, Give him some bread, Martha. How can you? I am only wondering whether we shall have enough. Oh, it is wrong, Martha. God, tell us to help the poor. Cut him a slice. Martha obeyed. The beggar went away. The man in charge of the thrashing machine got up and said grace, thanked his hosts, and went away to rest. Mitri did not lie down, but ran to the shop to buy some tobacco. He was longing for a smoke. While he smoked, he chatted to a man from Denmark, asking the price of cattle, as he saw that he would not be able to manage without selling a cow. When he returned to the others, they were already back to work again, and so it went on till the evening. Among these downtrodden, duped, and defrauded men, who are becoming demoralized by overwork and being gradually done to death by underfeeding. There are men living who consider themselves Christians and others so enlightened that they feel no further need for Christianity or for any religion. So superior do they appear in their own esteem, and yet their hideous lazy lives are supported by the degrading excessive labor of those slaves, not to mention the labor of millions of other slaves toiling in factories to produce silver, carriages, machines, and like 
for their use and the like for their use. They live among these horrors, seeing them and yet not seeing them, although other kind at heart, old men and women, young men and maidens, mothers and children, poor children, who are being mistreated and trained into moral blindness. Here is a bachelor grown old, the owner of thousands of acres, who has lived a life of idealness, greed, and overindulgence, who reads the New York Times and is astonished that the government can be so unwise as to permit Jews to enter the university. There is his guest, formerly the governor of a province, now a senator with a big salary, who reads with satisfaction that a congress of lawyers has passed a resolution in favor of capital punishment. Their pol political enemy, N.P., reads a liberal paper and cannot understand the blindness of the government in allowing the Union of Russian men to exist. Here is a kind, gentle mother of a little girl reading a story to her about a fox, a dog that lames some rabbits, and here is a little girl during her walks she sees other children barefooted, hungry, hunting for green apples that have fallen from the trees, and so accustomed is she to the sight that these children do not seem to her to be children such as she is, but only part of the usual surroundings, the familiar landscape. Why is this? Thank you guys for listening to the Only You Podcast. This is your boy, Lo Jackson. This has been a really great read. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. And I decided to do short stories by Leo Tolstoy this month just for the simple fact that it's easier to read like one short story than the whole entire book or to share just a chapter of a book. And I feel like some of these short stories are very meaningful and that, I don't know, they could actually change your life if you would let them or you would understand the meaning behind them. And, you know, Leo Tolstoy was a great guy. He went on to do many wonderful different writings and different books. Um, and like I had said earlier too, you know, you know, he changed his life from not, believing in anything to you know becoming a christian and actually you know developing opposing opinions about certain christian beliefs and today i got i wanted to read to you there are no guilty people just for the fact that everybody can be forgiven no matter what and sometimes we go through life and think that Oh, I can't be forgiven for the things I've done or, oh, I'm not going to forgive them. And then we hold grudges for so long that, you know, we don't ever really heal from certain situations that we go through. And maybe some of these readings will help you help somebody else grow and get over misunderstandings or, you know, how families go grow on in America and then you just separate your ideologies like... Oh, you're 18. Get out of this house. You can support yourself. And it's like, wait a minute, man. That's your kid. How can you just kick him out? And I've actually had a coworker that was from a different culture ask me one time, like, you know, why? What's up with you, um, Caucasian people that 
when your kids turn 18, you just are like, get out of here, you know, and you're 18, you can support yourself. And I told them, you know, unfortunately, that's true. And unfortunately, it's going on all around the country. And I actually had an opportunity to kind of live with a, a family that was of a different culture when I had turned 18. And I did for a whole year. And it was unreal the way, you know, when I first met one of the guys my age in that culture, he was like, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I was like, whoa. I, I never had anybody my age tell me it was a pleasure to meet me. And it shocked me because I thought, well, I should be telling people that. But I picked up these great traits of other cultures along the way. And I've applied them to my everyday life. And it's great to pick out the good things about cultures and leave the bad, even though sometimes it's easy to pick up bad too. I think that it's better to pick up the good and understand why those things are going on in our country and why we let those things go on because there's a lot of separation and disbelief in like parents and kids nowadays, even all throughout the generations. It's like we, one generation blames the next and then we're left at the drawing board of, you know, who, uh, who do we blame or, you know, it's, it's some, it has to be somebody's fault, you know? So one generation blames the next generation of why things are the way they are. And I mean, sometimes, yeah, that's true. But I mean, there's also, there's also history there. We write things down. We have computers to keep memories of everything. And there's things out there that are, there's programs out there that are remembering every mistake that was made on a certain type of program so that they, when they come out with a new program for whatever apparatus, computer component, whatever it is, smart chip, you know, it, even human brains and human personalities and they're, you know, it's like everybody thinks that they're special and that they're alone because they're going through something they think nobody else is going through. Dude, you are not special. There is somebody else going out that's going through the same thing that you are, you know, and there's no reason to feel guilty about it. There are no guilty people. And that's why I wanted to read this story that because a lot of people deal with guilt and um, they suffer from, you know, weird ideologies that now we know aren't acceptable, but a lot of people that are like ages 35 to 55, you know, we, we lived at the end of a time when, you know, it was nothing for your parents to backhand you at the dinner table. When they said, be home by the street lights being on, they meant it. When they whistled, you know, you were getting whipped when you got home. You know, we've gotten so far away from just normal ideologies of a country that, now, it's not okay to have any Christian ideologies in our government. Wait a minute. We were founded on Christianity. Everybody was coming here because they were being suppressed and they wanted to express their Christianity. And now, all of a sudden, we have separated church and state and we no longer say that we take a pledge to this country. So, this country is just like an island or a stepping stone to go somewhere else or to get people to come here I'm not sure what's really going on here, but it's it's a confusing time. But I hope that in time we can get this back on track and people will start to come together to learn to love each other and grow with one another and that real and to realize that the guilt you feel about certain situations or certain people 
is honestly our own shortcomings and our own mental um, facades of negative upbringing, self-abuse of things that we have no control over, you know, because once we learn that you can't control what somebody else does or the way they treat you, and it's unfortunate, and the way somebody treats you sometimes makes you feel guilty that, oh man, you know, I shouldn't have done that, and I go back through and self-analyze certain situations, even with my coworkers or my kids or, you know, just meeting somebody at the gas station, I think about that, but... You know, there's also people out there that suffer from spotlighting, you know, like they live their life like from the last three mistakes because in society, nobody ever remembers you for the good things you've done. They only remember for the last bad thing that you ever did. And that's the truth. That's what kind of sucks about society. And then when they're like people are writing their state representatives acting like this is a society that we want this to go on. We want that to go on. And, you know. Then they start to lean towards things that are immoral and improper. And what's going to go on in the future is people are going to look back at this time in our country's history and say, whoa, man, that's how embarrassing. What what was going on there? Why were we like putting down morals and values to allow the crazy to run free? And, you know, I don't agree with everything in this country, but I do agree that people should be reading books to make them aware of other cultures beliefs and that you know there's some writers out there that actually tell stories so you can understand that there are people out there just like you and that you're not alone and you may feel guilty but there are no guilty people and that's why I really enjoy Leo Tolstoy's writings too is that in this book you know he talks about you know a wretched beggar a lot you know and how things played out with him and we as people need to realize that guilt is real and shame is real but those are all mental things that have to do with some episode that you're gonna have to go back to relive let go and understand that hey that was just a happening in life and that you can't control what somebody else does when somebody outburst of anger or frustration or somebody tries to get to get you to act a certain way it's not necessarily anything that you have done or anything that has gone on between you and them they just are not seeing themselves outside of themselves and what they're doing so they're and maybe they are and maybe they're trying to trick you into a situation because those people are out there too but for the most part i don't think that people really see when they're bursting into anger or uh, you know being upset or they don't see that they're doing that or like the people that carry this shame and guilt with them they suffer from spotlighting where they're like oh you know everybody's thinking about that last mistake i made no they're not everybody else is worried about themselves and they are not thinking about you you got to stop self-sabotaging yourself because it's like when you have evasive thinking that means like you know you're allowing outward stimuli to attack your inward peace so when you have you know inward kind loving joyful feelings at your job that means that's a place where you want to be that's a place where you want to stay when you're self-sabotaging oh i'm never going to be good enough oh i got to do better you know that's an evasive thinking and that's causing you to obviously 
going to get fired, get let go, or you're going to act out or whatever, you know, but we don't know that people feel guilty like that or ashamed, and we need to be aware of that. But thank you guys for listening to the Only You podcast. Thank you for sharing me. Thank you for liking me. And hopefully this month you've enjoyed Leo Tolstoy. I have decided which author I'm picking next month, but I am going to, obviously, each month I'm going to introduce my authors. Um, And I still have a little bit of Leo Tolstoy left in me, so this week coming up, I'm going to try to do some more of his writings because he was just an all-around amazing person. And he just stood up to so much, and so many people believed in him. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, because Tolstoy... He pretty much was a atheist, and he was a, a nihilist. He didn't believe in anything, you know. And at 50, he decided, you know, wow, you know. But in reality, to me, God came back to him at 50 and told him, hey, it's time to get your life together to come home. So he did. And he wrote some of the greatest writings I've ever read. He's like, I enjoy him just because I've lived a similar life like Leo Tolstoy and I've been through a lot too. And I know a lot of you guys have been through a lot too. So it's good to read books and understand authors when they're writing stories or books or whether it be a psychological book or just a story, but a moral story because Leo Tolstoy's books and stories, they're all about morals and values and that, you know, cultures aren't that different. You know, just because you're an American doesn't mean you couldn't have a best friend that was a Russian or vice versa, you know, or any other type of cultures or skin colors or whatever people decide to divide each other about, you know, and that's all it has to do with. It's stupid. And people as a culture have been, they've just gotten wild and it's time that we get back together and love each other like a worldly people should, you know, because we all put our pants on the same way, one leg at a time. And that's what my grandmother always taught me. Don't worry, honey. Don't cry about people that are mistreating you. They put their pants on one leg at a time, just like you do. And it's true. Love you guys, man. And love yourselves and take care of yourselves and let that guilt go, you know, and let the shame dwindle away and help yourself realize that you only have one life to live. Why live in a mind that you're constantly berating yourself and beating yourself down? That's not a life you want to live. And that's not a type of mental territory that you want to constantly be battling in because you know that's another great writer is Joyce Myers you know the battlefield of the mind that was a great book check that one out too because we all are battling something in our minds and a lot of religions and cultures you know God is one the devil and God are the same thing it's just depending upon you know like in a Indian proverb what wolf do you dis- decide and discern to feed? The good wolf or the bad wolf? That's who you will become, you know? Your thoughts dictate your habits. Your hip- your habits dictate your lifestyle. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm the most perfect human being out there because I'm not. I have shortcomings. I've been misled. I've been mistreated. And I've always had a problem of saying no, you know? And I've been fighting my whole life just to be able to say no to anything and it's led me into being in trouble getting in trouble getting out of trouble it's led me into you know even in school like as a little kid I was getting in trouble because I was born and raised a certain way that made me have to be you know all I can be all the time and it's exhausting 
I'm getting to the age now where I'm exhausted being all I can be all the time to everybody. But I know that I could be more had I understand why I was having the feelings I was having that led me down all the roads I've been down and why all the things happened to me because of the decisions I made or because it's like this. Every little small decision you make leads to one major decision later. So every little tiny bad decision you make, it's going to lead to one major big bad decision later on. And you got to remember that. So the it's like, you know, the more good seeds you plant in your brain about, hey, I'm kind, I'm wise, I'm smart, people like me, I'm, I am everything I'm able to be at this point. I am, you know, I'm reading more books. I'm, and that's what this podcast is about, is about reading more books and becoming more intelligent and to realize people from our past aren't very far away and that a hundred years ago really wasn't that long. And yes, it seems like, oh, it's such a long time. No, it's not. You know, things have changed, but they haven't changed that much. And what's going on needs to end and we all just need to come back together and we can no matter what country you're from and no matter what worldly views you have and what religious differences you may succumb to in your lifetime but i'm telling you we are all on the same journey here and it's the journey of humankind and that word kind being involved in that word humankind is very very essential to everybody understanding the role we play and the role we play in getting each other to a different level at the same time is building each other up, being there for one another, quit all this, uh, you know, I don't like them for this reason. And, oh, I'm going to believe that person on TV because the division's got to stop and we just got to come together as a whole entire world. Love actually trumps all hate and thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast i know this has been kind of a long one but i felt like today i wanted to really share some kind words with you and maybe somebody's going through something and maybe somebody knows somebody that's going through something that they've come to them and told them how guilty they feel about a mistake they made or maybe somebody's should be feeling guilty about something they've done. They're not feeling guilty about it, you know, because there's also that aspect of guilt and guilt is powerful because shame and guilt are actually, um, very, very, um, demoralizing aspects of our lives that can lead to depression and, you know, pretty much mental self-harm. And a lot of people don't get that. You know, you can see a cut on your arm. You can't see a cut on your mind. And the pain that's connected to the, um, you know, the neural pathways in your brain. And actually, you know, heart, they say that your gut is like your second mind. When you have that gut instinct to back out of that situation, that you should always listen to it. Because if, and it's a small, subtle voice. And if you're always constantly on the go, constantly in the rat race, you're never going to hear that second mind and that gut feeling. Don't ignore your gut feelings and don't feel guilty about every decision you've made. You're more beautiful than that. You deserve more. And I do believe that every single person in the whole world brings something beautiful to the table. 
no matter what they've done or what kind of crazy they've brought. Even somebody who's doing life in prison has something still beautiful about them that they could offer the world somehow. We just haven't found a way to funnel things about these people into, you know, whatever it is they need to get better. And maybe at some point we will, scientifically, maybe educationally, maybe maybe even through... Like I started this podcast with, you know, genetically modified plants that are, they're actually making vaccines that grow inside of plants now, you know, and I don't know if that's something to be alarmed about or to be happy about, but I do believe there are a lot of laboratories out there that are trying to help the human mind and brain become something that's way better. And thank you guys for listening again. And I know I've shot all over the place today, but... I'm feeling good, and I hope you are too, and spring has sprung here in Illinois. All of the trees are budding. I got my garden in the ground. Things are looking beautiful. I just seen little ducklings the other day in my pond, so that was kind of cool. It's a beautiful weather out. It's been interesting. 80s, and then it dropped down to 50s. I've seen some snow flurries, I think, yesterday, even though a couple days ago it was 80, so it's crazy weather here in the Midwest, but thank you guys for listening to the only you podcast. Again, thank you also for sharing me and thank you. If you want to try to make your own podcast, you know, anchor is actually switched over to a straight, uh, Spotify for podcasters platform. Check it out in the app store because podcasting to me has been a great outlet. And sometimes when I'm stressed, I make podcasts because I'll, read a book or a paragraph of a book or something and I'll be like oh I gotta share that or when I read about an author on Wikipedia I think oh man this guy is great because there's been a lot of authors I've done that man they've lived some wild lives like the you know there's several out there just have lived crazy lives honestly you know Sigmund Freud being addicted to cocaine the guy that you know the first dude that invented surgery or whatever he was to I can't remember his name Hayward I think his name was yeah, you know, and like how they wound up losing their minds. And Hayward actually did. He never got better. Freud realized that it was addictive. So, I mean, this podcast has been a great um, outlet to me. And I've gained so many fans, you guys. And I'm like, I mean, it, it makes me blush just thinking about the people that have written to me and told me that they really enjoyed my books I chose. And I've had actually people tell me, Oh, will you do this? Or can you do that book or talk about, I've had a friend actually ask me to do, um, positive thinking books. Um, it's been great. And I have another friend that she listens to and I appreciate her and we've known each other for many, many years. And I, and I have another friend that makes music. So, she tunes in and listens and tells me things too. A lot of people I grew up with listen. And I appreciate all you guys. Some of my coworkers listen. Thank you guys for listening too. I do appreciate it. And hopefully maybe I teach you something and maybe we can help people grow and become better at communicating even though I'm not very good at it myself. You know, I'm still learning too and I'm never too proud to realize that I could be wrong, you know, and that the way I was raised is not the way everybody else was raised, and my shortcomings are not the same as somebody else's. And when people learn about me and the things that have gone on with me, maybe they would understand, and then, again, maybe they wouldn't. And right now, I'm actually 
in the midst of starting a new book and I'm excited about that too and hopefully it's a good read but we'll see how that goes um thank you guys for listening to only you podcast this has been a great uh podcast this time and hopefully you'll share and listen more often I appreciate it and thank you for your feedback it means a lot to me and thank you for all that you pretty much say about me and how you feel about me it does make me feel good i appreciate it thanks again